Here visitors came from miles around to buy the cloth for which the city was famous, with bolts of brightly coloured material laid out on the trestle stalls, cut to measure against the customer as he bargained. Early in the morning the streets leading to this large square would be filled with the carts of farmers bringing their wares to market, the squeals of driven pigs, bleating sheep, the mooing of milk cows. Amidst the cries of the sellers and animals, there were stalls selling freshly caught fish from the Arno, slices from hooked slabs of bloody meat, varieties of cheeses, wine from the barrel. Along the walls were neatly stacked piles of vegetables and fruit, onions and withered greens in the spring, fennel and figs, cherries and oranges in summer, and in winter meagre piles of earthy root vegetables. Amidst the throng of townsfolk and yokels, the mendicant friars in their threadbare robes begged from passers-by. The blare of a herald's trumpet and the crowd would throng the entrance to the Via del Corso to watch a blooded, stumbling criminal in rags and chains being whipped through the street amidst jeers on his way to the Bargello and a public hanging on the morrow. The first Medici mentioned in the records of Florence is one Chiarissimo, who appears on a legal document dated 1201. Little is known of exactly what happened to the family during this period. All we know for certain is that the Medici became money-changers and gradually prospered, to such an extent that by the end of the thirteenth century they had become one of the better-known business families in the city. Even so, the Medici were not regarded as one of the leading families, who were all either noble landowners or well-established merchants. Then, in 1296, Ardingo de' Medici became the first member of the family to be chosen as Gonfaloniere. Florence was an independent republic, theoretically run on democratic lines. It was ruled by a nine-man council known as the Signoria, the chief of whom was the Gonfaloniere, who presided for a period of two months. The Gonfaloniere and his Signoria were selected by lottery from amongst members of the guilds, These lotteries were increasingly fixed, so that the signoria generally represented whichever leading family or families held sway at the time. In 1299, Guccio de' Medici was the second member of the family to become Gonfaloniere. Guccio must have shown his benefactors that the Medici could be relied upon, for in 1314 Averardo de' Medici became the third Medici Gonfaloniere. Florence may have been lacking in power and historical greatness compared with such cities as Paris and Milan, but it soon made up for this in the creation of wealth. This was mainly due to the new growth industry of the thirteenth century, banking, which was to a large extent an Italian invention. The English term derives from the Italian word banco, referring to the original counters on which the bankers conducted their trade. At this time Italy was the main economic power in Europe, with the Genoese and the Venetians controlling the import of silk and spices from the Orient. Marco Polo even records that in the last decade of the thirteenth century Genoese merchant ships were trading on the Caspian Sea, and as early as 1291 two Genoese galleys disappeared searching for a route to the Orient by way of West Africa. International trade was on the increase, despite hazardous, rutted turnpikes and shipping routes raided by pirates. The overland journey from Florence across the Alps to the northern trading city of Bruges in Flanders, a distance of some seven hundred miles, usually took between two and three weeks. The less dangerous sea journey via the port of Pisa and the Bay of Biscay 
could take twice as long. Goods such as cloth, wool, and grain were supplemented by luxury goods from the Orient, which were mainly destined for the courts of powerful noblemen and royalty. The setting up of banks in the main trading centers greatly facilitated this burgeoning international trade, and in the process merchant bankers accumulated large assets at these centers, which they soon began loaning out at interest despite the church's ban on usury. Many banks managed to circumvent the church's ban by maintaining that there was always a possibility of loss in their business. Any extra charge was merely a payment against risk, so this was not really usury at all. Others claimed that they were not actually charging interest on their loans. Any increase in the size of the repayments was due entirely to fluctuations in the exchange rate. Despite the spuriousness of its justifications, banking soon became an accepted practice. At the end of the 13th